two things. One, let's just start out with uh, a thanks to uh, Trekkel. Yeah. Or Trekkel. Say go visit because actually they, uh, Trekkel is actually, uh, um, they're shipping right now during this whole uh, quarantine thing. So they're out um, sending art supplies to people. So if you need some art supplies, definitely um, give them a shout. They're shipping out. Uh, order my, my brush set. I think it's fabulous. So do that as well. But uh, thank you. What's the, course, what's thank the discount you. code, Tony? I still, I think the discount code is still SD20, and I believe it's 10% off right now. Cool. So go to trackall.com and buy the Tony Cerny brush set brushes. <laughs> if you want to be, if you want to be an old master or just paint like one, pick up Tony's, Tony's set. It's a pretty heavy time as is, but um, for everybody in the painting world, and particularly the New York art scene, uh, we lost one of our heroes, uh, Daniel Green, this past week. And uh, we were lucky enough to sit down with him uh, a little while ago and record a conversation, which we're really excited to get out. Um, And I have to say, I am in re-listening to it, uh, editing. I I was so glad that uh, both Tony and and I had the chance to tell him to his face in person how much of an impact he had on us. Because yeah. uh, there's one painting that he did, a uh, pastel portrait of his uh, wasn't really his teacher, but uh, another teacher at the League, Robert Beverly Hale, who was like a, a legendary figure at the League, and that painting has been in the office at the Art Students League in New York for basically, I think, since it was painted in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And everybody who studied at the League has to know that portrait. And if you weren't blown away by it, then you probably need to have your eyes checked. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. And uh, I, I was really glad to have the opportunity to tell him how much uh, that painting affected me and and seeing his work i remember once tony you and i uh back when we were working at mtv and you know hanging out in train tunnels um (laughs) we uh we stood in front of we met and stood in front of uh portraits inc which at the time had this like park avenue location on the upper east side yeah and we're just staring at it they were closed but they had you know all these portraits in the window and i remember there was one by daniel green that was like amazing and i i mean we both knew exactly who he was we knew all about him because uh he was he was just such a huge figure in in the scene and uh uh you know he was he was great and and really open and and friendly when when we recorded with him uh i i don't know the the circumstances of you know how he passed away but uh Definitely want to send our condolences to his family and to, to Wendy, who helped us out a lot when we were recording. Yeah, and what was funny that you just brought up that memory of us walking uh, across uh, from uh, near Portraits Inc. is we both knew who it was from like half a block away because you could mm-hmm. see it. We were like, ah, oh, that looks like a Daniel Green because at that time, um, what was that mid '90s, early '90s, or something like that there there was still that feeling of oh we're kind of the we're kind of the you know the the odd people in the in the art world and people like daniel green 
were the ones who almost at the time made us say, well, well, they're doing it and it's okay to um, pursue. Not only they're doing it, they did it. They did like, it. He was already, yeah. yeah. And he was successful and they yeah. were doing it right. and, and, and it made, and it reaffirmed that idea that what we were, this pursuit, this thing that we were going for that was so odd to so many people in the art world, like it was okay. They were doing it and you could see the results and, and you could see that, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's it. So he was definitely a, a, a pretty important figure to a lot of people um, at that time. And, and, and even now, because if, you know, I'm sure you've seen online uh, people just pouring at, you know, pouring out their, their, their condolences, but how much he meant to them then and now. And, and I think that's an important, uh, um, just an important thing to bring up is that he influenced so many people. And, you know, I guess in my own life, I, I, I only wish, I only hope that I'm able to influence or, or at least inspire people to do something, their own thing that will eventually hopefully make the world just a little bit of a better place. I think he left, you know, the art world just a better place um, than it, than it was before he started painting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is no doubt he was like a legend in the, particularly in the portrait painting world, but in, in the figurative painting world. Um, and I, I hope that, uh, you know, that people enjoy hearing his voice. I, I definitely in the editing, uh just it felt really nice to be able to to hear his voice and to hear him uh his ideas on on yeah. art he's he's uh a huge figure and and a, a huge talent and a huge loss to to our community and his story is so interesting you know he 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 had so many fun cool things and little things i've i've kind of heard of or knew about but when he would go into some of his stories of when he was a youth or you know, um, certain people he hung out with or, or met through his adventures and being an, a New York artist. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost like that, that, uh, movie quality life of, oh yeah, he was this like New York artist doing it. Uh, you know, when, when, when people, when people weren't really doing it the way he was doing it. Um, what was interesting to me too, or not interesting, what made me really happy is that when we recorded with him and everything you said, yes, but I think when we were telling him the truth about how we felt and thanking him about, you know, doing what he did, he was general, like legitimately appreciative. Like he really cared that we, you know, that, that he kind of helped us and helped people like us find a little path. Um, and and dedicate our lives to the arts and have him as a figure that we looked up to. And I, I, I think he really, it meant a lot to him. At least that's what I felt. And what I've heard from other people who've spent a lot of time with him, that that's legitimate. Like he really, like, I think he really did care about influencing and, and, and helping and, and being open um, about art to other people. You know, one last thing that I, I just, um, in in listening to it uh appreciated was that uh, uh just almost as like a model for life because i mean he's 
he was in a wheelchair when we recorded with um his old and uh he seemed like he had done a lot of work that he was proud of and uh i think we all struggle with that with you know feeling good about the things the paintings that we do and they always feel a little bit flawed and uh i think it was reassuring and kind of inspiring to see a guy uh you know in his golden years who could look back and feel proud of of the work that he did and the the people he influenced and um i definitely have been thinking a lot about that lately yeah yeah so i really hope um you all enjoy this conversation i think it means a lot to to us to be able to present this to everybody um and yeah I, I just, you just, yeah, I don't know really what more to say, but just enjoy this and, and, and I hope it means something, you know, to, uh, yeah. To, and to, rest to in peace there. to Daniel Green. Daniel Green, you won't be forgotten and your work is here and we will enjoy it for, you know, as long as we're around. So that's the great thing about being an artist is that you can leave something for people to, to enjoy for a very, very long time. So I guess. Rest- Right, yes. Recipe Daniel Green. And uh, we'll try to get more out to you, more episodes out to you all as soon as we can. Uh, stay safe. And we will again see you all very soon. And, uh, and yeah. yeah. Very good. <laughs> yeah, no. So um, I'm just going to do a couple of quick things here. Very good. Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Oh, that's so good. I'm, I'm glad. So, um, all right, Ted. We're ready? Okay. Yeah. Welcome to Suggested Donation. I'm Edward Minoff. And I'm Tony Serenai. And we are here with Daniel Green. Uh, I was probably 13 when I started studying at the Art Students League. They wouldn't let me uh, work in front of the model when I was 13, so I went down to the basement and I was sculpting in stone. Oh, really? I didn't know they had that policy. <laughs> when I was yeah, well, when I was thirteen, I also looked like I was about seven. So <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want. You still look like yourself. I probably would make the models uncomfortable anyway. So uh, I was down in the basement chiseling away at limestone, and I remember going up to the office and seeing this unbelievably beautiful portrait of Robert Beverly Hale that you did, and marveling at the hands and just wanting to know more about it. And I'm so grateful to get to actually talk to you in person. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of my favorite paintings. It is beautiful. Thank you. So how did that painting come? Were you studying with Robert Beverly Hale? No, I never studied with him. I, at that time, I was teaching at the league. I had taken over my teacher's classes, Robert Brackman. Uh-huh. And uh, I lived on West 67th Street in New York City. Mm-hmm. And Is Robert, this in the 80s? Pardon? Is this in the 80s? This was in the 70s, I okay. believe. Uh, Robert Beverly Hale was a neighbor of mine. He lived on the same street uh-huh. uh, down the block, and he was teaching at the league. He was a renowned teacher, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I had never studied with him. Uh-huh. Um, the director of the Art Students League asked uh, some of the teachers to do portraits of one another. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to do a portrait of uh, Bob Hale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was 
thrilled to do it uh, because I, I knew him, I knew what he looked like, uh, he was in effect a neighbor. So he came to pose for me, which was in effect right down the block on West 67th Street. But at that time, he was quite weak and elderly and frail. Mm -hmm. And I selected a pose where um, he was seated, and I asked him to hold his hands elevated mm -hmm. uh, so that I could get his hands in the portrait. But he was just too weak to be able to hold his hands, and they kept dropping to his lap, and I couldn't get his hands in the picture. So I decided to abandon that picture and do another one of him standing where he was standing. And I figured that if he was standing, he could just drop his arms down, and if I had a long enough, tall enough surface, I could get his hands in. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. Um, the portrait that, I, that is at the Art Students League is, in effect, the second portrait that I did of him. The first one was where he was unable to hold the pose, and that was a horizontal picture, which I now have in my studio. So you, you kept it? Yeah, I kept it. Mm -hmm. uh, and in doing the picture of uh, Hale, uh, I decided to do it in pastel, uh, because I had always uh, kind of specialized in pastel. Mm -hmm. And he came to pose for me. I don't remember how many sittings there were, but one day he came in with a beautiful scarf that his wife had just knitted for him. Uh -huh. And I was very anxious to do him in the scarf. And happily, I had just acquired uh, a very large, brand new set of Sennelier pastels. At the time, I think the Sennelier set had, a, had about 450 or 500 individual colors. Mm -hmm. And they were all organized by color and by value. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, each color had four or five values. Uh -huh. So... Uh, I'd like to take a, a break a moment and have yeah, a drink of this. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, babe. You're welcome. Let's take a sip of that orange juice. <laughs> yeah, let me just grab It's so exciting to hear about this portrait because I've Thank been you. admiring it since I was 13. Oh, really? Which, which is this? <laughs> the one at the Art Students League of Robert Beverly Hill. Of course, yeah. That is a... I, I think it's an iconic portrait. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, I think... Because it's been in the office, everybody who's ever who's studied in the league since it was yeah. painted mm -hmm. has admired it, mm -hmm. and it's it's like influenced basically, you know, how many generations of people coming into the league? Pretty much everyone we know. <laughs> and I don't think you were teaching at the league when I was, you know, uh, when I was first studying there. But uh, I just I was aware of you just because of that portrait. And what year was that, just out of curiosity? Well, they've told me at the league that people coming into the league have, uh, as a result of seeing the picture, that any number of people have registered to go to the league. Yeah. Because I was basically uh, a complete novice when I started at the league. And then Teaching ended up, or uh, studying? You know, studying. excelling. Uh -huh. So they, 
use that picture as a uh, selling point. That and you didn't get a commission from all those. You should get a little bit of each. <laughs> He was paid for the portrait. Royalties. You need royalties. <laughs> in the, in the, we're going to re, rework the whole payment process for artists. <laughs> we, we need to need sign to. up. They should be like, how did you hear of us? Like through the internet, through, the, right. <laughs> through Daniel Green's portrait. Yeah. <laughs> As a, you know, even with that, with that painting, I remember being in art college in the late 80s and early 90s at the School of Visual Arts, mm -hmm. not knowing anything about painting. And I was in the illustration department because that was the only place you can learn how to paint and draw. And I remember people talking about the league and it's this place uptown and and that portrait came up. They're like, yeah, there's this like amazing oh, great. Paint, uh, portrait by Daniel Green. And I was like, who's that? And that was, this is before the internet. And that's like when you would start collecting anything you can do, whether it was like illustrations or pamphlets or, you know, for me, living romance on, covers. Yeah. But living on the Upper East Side, they would have those and uh, recycle night. They would, people would put out their, their paper and you would find the Sotheby's catalogs oh, yeah, and stuff that. in there. Yeah. And I would go through the garbage and rip out the photos. Oh, gar of things. Garbage in New York is sensational. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had students that found Valuable paintings in the garbage. In the garbage, yeah. yeah. Well, and didn't I, Eli Wilner start out finding frames in the garbage? I don't know where he got them, but that's quite possible, <laughs> quite possible. Because they were throwing out the kind of frames that Wilner was attracted yeah, to. Yeah, beautiful gilded. They were, you know, not, they were not modern at all, very classical. Yeah. So he uh, acquired quite a collection of uh, wonderful frames from... The, the trash. On the street. Yeah. I have uh, several sewing machine bases that I found in the garbage in New York that I use as tables for my pastels and as as bases for my oil painting uh, uh, table. Uh -huh. Like uh, big metal ones or wooden ones? Well, they're they're metal. Yeah. No, like the heavy duty. Yeah, the heavy duty ones. <laughs> yeah, they, they were, but they were in the garbage. Uh, I don't recall where we were. We're talking, about, we're the talking about the scarf and the, the Sennelier set. Right. With the At any rate, um, I started a second picture of Hale, as I mentioned, with him standing on the premise that I could get everything that he presented in if he just dropped his arms to full length. One day, as I mentioned before, his wife, he, he wore a scarf that his wife had knitted for him, and I thought it was very beautiful. It was very multicolored, and I had acquired a great set of pastels, the Sennelier pastels, that was organized in such a way that it was not terribly difficult to replicate mm -hmm. his scarf. Uh, each color was in the set in three or four different gradations of value. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to uh, immediately include his scarf. Uh, <clears throat> when uh, I finished the painting, uh, which had been commissioned by the League, um, we had it framed and I guess they must have picked it up or I sent it down to the League and they put it in the office. And I was told that the whole school came down to see it because he was such a well-known, popular oh, yeah. Yeah. teacher and 
I guess they were interested in how he was depicted. And because so many people had studied with Hale, uh, it was a particularly um, significant picture to have hanging at the Louvre. Yeah. It's certainly one of my favorite pictures of my own. Yeah. Um, and I've had nothing but uh, a very good response to it over many years. And I've had it reproduced as one of the best examples of my work over and over again. So it's become rather famous. Uh, Who's your very Cornelis Vandergeest? <laughs> Who's your Cornelis Vandergeest? The Van Dyck portrait at the National Gallery that he carried around as his kind of calling card. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know beautiful, that. beautiful. Well, Van Dyck was a sensational painter. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't that. <laughs> no, not at all. So, what, was, what was your status when? Were you a student at the time when you painted? When you did? No. Mail? No, but I, but I went to the Art Students League as a student. Yeah. So you came from Cincinnati and then... Well, actually, I made a side trip after Cincinnati to Miami Beach where I began doing... Uh, my, my mother and sister were living there. And, and I went there to live with them and to see if I could get a job earning enough money to be able to go to an art school. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about the League at the time. And I moved to Miami Beach, and I discovered that there were portrait artists working in shops on the streets and in hotels doing pastel portraits or oil portraits of tourists. Huh. And I thought that would be a great way to, if I could get a job doing that, yeah. uh, earn money while I was learning. Mm -hmm. and get started in uh, uh, the life that I knew I was going to lead, which was to be an artist. Um, so I applied for a job at, a, at an open front store on a very busy street. The shop was called Wencos and Surge, the name of the two artists that owned it. And they had about s seven or eight artists working for them doing pastel portraits, the portraits were $10 a piece or $5 a piece, depending on the size. <laughs> they took about 45 minutes to an hour to do. Mm -hmm. And they were of uh, tourists who wanted to have their portraits done. Uh, I watched for a while. I applied for a job. They told me there were no openings. Mm -hmm. I noticed that the artists who were working in these shops were primarily Cuban. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I simply watched them and, and tried to learn how they were doing what they did. Was there like a formula that they kind of, because to be able to do it uh, yes, so fast? Yes, you, you pick up. There is a sort of a formula. Yeah. Um, ben Wenkos in particular was one of the best artists I've ever seen. And he had a uh, certain way of working that I was trying to learn from and figure out. Mm -hmm. um, but one day, uh, I noticed that several of the artists were no longer there, the Cuban artists. Uh -huh. And I inquired, uh, and I was actually, I may be getting the story a little wrong, but what happened was several artists had, the Cuban artists had left 
to go to Cuba to fight in the hills with Castro. Oh, so they were, oh, yeah. So they were very political. Yeah. But for me, that meant there was now an opening. An opening. opening. <laughs> exactly. Viva <And> la revolution. <laughs> precisely, precisely. So I, uh, recognizing there, there now were open spots, I applied for the job. And that was when I learned what was, for me, the bitter truth. They told me, well, I wasn't good enough. I, I, I had <laughs> any training of any kind. Uh, and I just simply wasn't up to uh, snuff. Yeah. Well, that was a rude awakening. <laughs> but I decided that I needed to learn more. So I bought a book on how to do pastel portraits mm -hmm. by the artist Stella Mackey. And I bought an assortment of hard pastels. And I went home and practiced. And I uh, reapplied. Uh, and to my surprise, they then decided, yes, they were going to hire me. You were good enough. <laughs> well, I wasn't really good enough, but they needed somebody to open the store in the daytime and do any portraits that people wanted for $5 in the middle of the day or to sweep the place out. And basically... Yeah continue a presence of having somebody there. But the season started, and uh, well, ap apropos of that, uh, I kept practicing using hard pastels, and I did what I thought were abstract paintings, just to get the feel of what the medium was like. To learn, to learn the tool. Precisely. Yeah. Um, and then one day, to my surprise, just before the season started, uh, they decided, yes, they were going to, to hire me. And I remember being extraordinarily uh, happy that that was, in effect, going to become my first day doing what I was going to do the rest of my life, which was to be an artist. And uh, I went to work there. And uh, they, were, they got so busy. One day the streets would be clear of traffic. And the official day that the season started, it was bumper to bumper as far as the eye could see. So I was immediately pressed into service doing portraits. And uh, I had people posing for me one after another. It got to a point where I became skillful enough simply through practice to uh, turn out creditable portraits. Was it scary? Like, I'm now all of a sudden going to do this thing and I'm on, I'm, I'm on the spot and I have to produce or else yes, either my yes, boss it, or the people themselves are going to be it like... It was scary. And there were a few <laughs> incidences in which uh, I simply didn't know enough. Yeah. I had, didn't have enough experience. <laughs> I remember one time I was doing a portrait of a little girl and everybody paid in advance. I think it was $10. And uh, I was finished. And I said, you can get up now, uh, sweetheart, or whatever it was. And a big booming voice behind me said, don't get up, Mildred. He's not finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it was a traumatic experience because... Uh, I, he, he wasn't happy with it, and I had to work until 
he was happy. I remember another <laughs> like time. Barking calls in your ear. <laughs> that nose is not quite my daughter's. That's right. Well, I do remember another situation where there were crowds of people watching us, and a woman, I was doing another child, and a woman said to me, she didn't think I had the mouth quite right, and I modified it, and I looked around, and she nodded. She was satisfied with it. Then she said something about the expression wasn't quite right, and I changed something on the eyes, and I turned around and got her acknowledgement that, yes, that was okay. And uh, I don't remember if there was anything else, but when I was finished, I looked around, and I didn't see her. And I said to the child that I was painting, what happened to your mother? And she said, well, that wasn't my mother. <laughs> so <laughs> just, just some random just had a critic. Precisely. Somebody in the crowd decided to tell me how to work. <laughs> so that working in Florida was a, a, a learning experience, yeah, and a unique experience. A crash course in like, yeah. It was. And eventually, when I, I became skillful enough, I was averaging, uh, I think it was seven or eight pictures a day. And, uh, it's a lot of practice. Yeah, and, and I saved money, and I met somebody there that was going to New York. And when the season was over in the fall, we drove to New York. I headed to the Art Students League. Did you know about the Art Students League at yes, that point? Yes, I had sent around. I forgot to mention that. I sent a, uh, away for a catalog of the Art Students League. Mm-hmm. And in it, <clears throat> I saw the work of Robert Brackman. And I immediately recognized that Brackman's work was extremely good, and I wanted to learn how to paint like that. And I knew that his work embodied all the things I didn't know that I wanted to become skilled at doing. And so the first thing I did when I got to New York was to enroll in the Art Students League. Uh, And I also procured a job on 57th Street at an art store, a job uh, stretching canvases and wrapping paints and Mm -hmm. uh, just general. uh, Did they teach you that or did you know how to like stretch canvases? I didn't know. They taught me how to do that. Uh, But... uh, I, I learned about art materials while working in an art material store. Yeah. Uh, it, as a matter of fact, that the brand was Fredericks. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. They make uh, canvas. Yeah, they make canvas, and uh, so I, I learned some things about uh, handling paint and stretching canvas and all the rest of it. And I went to the league and enrolled in Brackman's class his evening class, because I worked in the daytime. Um, the f- first time Brackman came into class, first time I saw him, he noticed my work. Uh, I already had some experience from my work The trial by fire. <laughs> Miami. Yeah, days. exactly. And uh, he announced to the class, we have a lot of talent in class this year. And I was flattered, because he was... He was uh, acknowledging my work right away. And I was also amazed that he could have the insight to see in someone who really had no training of any kind that there was uh, potential. Yeah. 
So I, he gave me a kind of a shot of uh, confidence, confidence right away. I later learned that he was telling people all over the school uh, that he had uh, an unusual, unusually talented uh, student. Uh, I also learned later on that he was instrumental in obtaining a scholarship for me. Matter of fact, I get teary-eyed even yeah, now yeah. Uh, when I think of Brackman, because he was uh, an immense influence and uh, I'm to this day indebted yeah. to him. What was his history? At, say, say again? What was his history? Had he kind of come through the league himself? Well, Brackman was from Russia, from Odessa, Russia. Uh -huh. He was born in 1898. His family traveled to the United States sometime, I, I guess, around the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. um, he studied, uh, he, he apparently evidenced uh, talent early on, and he studied with Robert Henry, who was a oh, great yeah. American yeah. painter, and uh, there's another one that's equally famous, uh, Henry and uh, st starts with a C. Uh, American? Uh, yes, Chase? American. It yeah, might have been, been Chase, been. but I don't think it was Chase. It would have been later, probably. Yeah. Uh, Coleman, but he was a still life guy. No, this was uh, an American. Uh, <sighs> can't think. The name will probably yeah, come yeah, to yeah. me. Um, Did he do his his studying was in Russia, and I'm assuming in the traditional kind of repin. No, I don't think or, I don't think he studied in Russia. He came oh. to the states. Before he came to the states. Oh, before but then, that, okay. with Robert Henry, that would have. Possibly been at the league, right? Because uh, Robert uh, was it probably was at the league, and then the other one. Uh, I keep thinking of Corbet, but it, uh, of course it wasn't <laughs> him. Uh, How old was he? <laughs> there was a famous, another famous American artist that Brackman did study with. Uh, um, was that a very tight bond that you were well, able to <clears throat> create with? Couple him? things. Uh, <clears throat> yes, I was. Uh, an admirer of Brackman's yeah. all my life. Uh, but to my surprise, Brackman was not a good teacher. Um, he spoke uh, a halting kind of English. Um, and his, fa his favorite phrase in class was, you know, you know, no, I, didn't. No. <laughs> I don't know. But did anybody I, ever say no? Actually, I don't. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, I did come to a conclusion, however, that he knew how to paint. He knew how to paint extremely well, and that anything that he said was valid, even though he couldn't articulate clearly. Yeah. He knew how to paint, so I considered whatever he said to be gospel. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was another artist, Frederick Taubes, who uh, was extremely articulate and who was uh, also a teacher. I don't know if he taught at the league, but he was a terrible painter, in my opinion. And everything he said was wrong. So I opted to 
uh, follow Brackman's uh, instruction, what there was of it, because I knew he knew how to paint. Yeah. And that whatever he said was valid. Uh, I guess that's all I would have. Would you get I, to see him paint uh, as well? Like, would he demo yeah. in class, or would you go to his studio and see well, him work? Well, he, he took an interest in me. Yeah. And uh, he was very friendly with the painter Robert Phillip, who was another terrific painter. Oh, yeah, and they invited me, or maybe I invited myself, <laughs> to go to Phillip's studio that was at Carnegie Hall. And uh, he was doing a portrait of Brackman. And Brackman was posing, mm -hmm. and Philip was painting him. And I was watching Philip paint him. And I remember once Philip got a phone call or something, and Brackman was still posing. And I was standing behind Philip's painting. And so I motioned to Brackman to turn his head this way or that way a little <laughs> bit. And I began checking it. Nothing checked, but it looked exactly like Brackman. But Philip was so good that he could catch the essence of someone, the proper tilt of their head, um, uh, their features. He, he just had a, a sense about what he was doing that he was able to pick up and convey. Um, but I began imposing myself on uh, some very, very accomplished artists, another whom I met and uh, became friendly with was the painter Sidney Dickinson. And he like, sort of hung around and he invited me to his studio, which also was in Carnegie Hall. And he gave me some <clears throat> personal tips about painting. And he also painted a portrait of me when I was about 19. And he explained how he was painting the portrait. So I was the beneficiary of uh, some one-on-one -on -one education for yeah, a moment. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. Uh, to this day, I'm indebted to some of the uh, elder statesmen of American painting that uh, I was able to become friendly with. But you've also passed that forward, you know, through the years of you being. Uh, an artist and a teacher, I know so many people have been influenced by you and your work. So whether you meant it or not, you continued that and you yes. spread those words to, and it came to people like me and, and all over, you know, it's especially at a time when during my, and I'm still in the area of trying to learn, but um, the, what what was it like at the time when you were 19 and you were getting this one-on-one -on -one, you know training at this moment what was in the air in New York trying to be an artist world. and getting a, 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 a let's say a classical education or a proper education and in, in painting and drawing what was it like then um, well uh, that's a good question I'm trying to think back uh, This was still the heyday of abstraction. Yeah, yeah. And there were not a lot of places where one could go to find representational painting instruction. There were a handful of people who were uh, teaching classical painting. 
but that wasn't really terribly popular in schools. Mm -hmm. um, so to a certain extent, the uh, schools or the teachers who were trying to perpetuate uh, classical painting were few and far between. Um, but I'm assuming that the teachers who were teaching it were their knowledge was coming from the sor a source that wasn't that far in in the past that that's, was really that was really like coming from the the tradition that was the the tradition. So you were getting some of like the I'm assuming some of the knowledge from the people who got it the knowledge from the that's quite right the ones that we are like. Well, I do remember that uh, realistic painters in those days kind of hung out together, yeah. shot one another out, became interactive and friendly. I, I met a number of uh, artists at that time who were terrific realist painters, people like uh, uh, David Levine and yeah. Aaron Schickler and... John Koch was a huge influence yeah. on uh, representational painters. Yeah. And in many cases, uh, they were uh, forthcoming about, about how they worked and trying to pass on uh, uh, information. Yeah, yeah. And were they all selling work in galleries, or was there like yes. an alternate scene, maybe yeah. like portrait art, it seems like, was a viable place? Well, as a matter of fact, that's a, that's a good point. There were certain galleries in New York that specialized in realist painting. Mm. And one could then see in those galleries probably the best of realism oh, yeah. in New York. Uh, how well they were doing, I don't know, because that was not the type of work that was in favor at the time, yeah. but one could go to Portraits Incorporated yeah. and see a whole range of styles of realist painting. Mm -hmm. One could go to Davis Gallery, uh, which was a small gallery that handled uh, Aaron Schickler. Um, there were probably a handful of other galleries that I no longer remember mm -hmm. where one could find uh, classical kind of work. Portraits Incorporated was especially uh, important because they represented the best American portrait artists and, I th and they had dozens upon dozens upon dozens of artists that they handled but they had, and these artists all worked in very different techniques. Yeah. So one could go there and see uh, portraits done in a whole variety of styles. Right. My biggest break was eventually uh, uh, becoming affiliated with Portraits Incorporated. I immediately got commissions to do portraits from life, and I was paid. You know, good prices for them. And the sitters would actually sit? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, many of the people who had their portraits done 
were required to have their portraits done because of the position that they had attained. Mm -hmm. So when I would do a portrait of uh, the chairman of the board of IBM or Mm -hmm. uh, the stock exchange or national cash register company, I would meet with them. I would tell them how many sittings I thought it was going to take. I based it all on the way I worked in art school and I, I recognize that it would take me about 10 sittings of three hours each. 30 hours. To, uh, to do a portrait from life. We would look at my calendar, we'd look at his or her calendar, and we'd choose a block of uh, 10 sittings. And either they would come to New York, and by that time I had a studio on 67th Street, mm-hmm. and they would pose for me in my studio, or I would go out of town. and paint uh, either five sittings of three hours each and then come back another time later Mm -hmm. and do another five sittings. But most of the time they came to New York. But that was terrific practice. That's a substantial commitment on their part, which I think you'd have a hard time finding people willing to do that. Well, today it's all changed because... Most portrait artists give the sitters the option mm-hmm. of doing the whole thing from photographs. And right. sitters, of course, jump at the chance to not, not have, have to deal to with it at all. But the problem is that so many pictures today look so photographic. Yeah. yeah. And many of the artists that uh, work from photographs would not be able to do it if it was solely done from life. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, I, I paint the occasional portrait commission from life i only do it from life and uh it's it just it looks radically different and i think to a lot of the you know i think to the untrained eye maybe even to the trained eye the ones from photographs look better you know and that they're um well they look more like photographs and exactly, so many people are used to seeing to accept that photographs are what we look like uh, and I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. It's just it's a way to view us. Um, what do you think the differences are between like work from life? I mean, it sounds like you were really committed to well to that at a time when it must. I'm of the opinion that in many cases, the artists who are doing portraits from photographs don't have the skills to be able to do it from life because they never developed those skills. And as a result, there's a whole uh, group of artists working from photographs whose work all looks like it's done from photographs. It's obvious uh, when you see it, yeah. There are a a number of artists uh, like that I see now painting portraits who were really well, you know, can paint a beautiful portrait from life, but can't find commission portrait commissions with people who are willing to sit, and so they're they're doing them from photographs. And I think uh, in many cases, not particularly happy about it, and wishing they could get more settings from life. Um, it's well, a challenge. <clears throat> I'm sure that's true, but you can also put your foot down yeah. and determine with this client that. That's the way you work. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they will certainly opt to eliminate the inconvenience of having to pose for many sittings uh, 
and to instead to have it done from uh, photographs, but they run the risk of the finished picture falling into a category that uh, um, isn't as personal as it as it might have been had they agreed to. Uh, well, you developed a relationship. I mean, thirty hours with somebody. Yeah, sure, a lot of time. absolutely. That's another part of. Uh, doing it from life that's so, I may be repeating myself, that's so fascinating. The people that you, you encounter and that you get to yeah. meet and interact with. Uh, at one point, uh, I was on the short list to do a portrait of Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. And I was expecting, had I gotten a commission, Norman Rockwell got it. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and he did a very nice portrait. Yeah. But I would have loved to have... Uh, Hung out with Richard yeah, Nixon. Yeah, <laughs> asking questions. And, yeah. and of course. Yeah, true. When you were, right before you started working with Portraits, Inc., in your training, were you starting to develop a process for doing portraiture and being able to do it on, you know, a professional level that Portraits, Inc. would would accept you into their roster. Yes, definitely. I always loved doing uh, people and portraits, and I personally made a study on my own of uh, how to paint portraits. Yeah. And uh, that was my area of particular interest. And so I was already uh, involved in developing skills that would enable me to be able to, to do portraits. And would that, I mean, would any of the Miami, time in Miami help influence all the way to Art Students League being in front of a live model to be like, this is just, I want to paint people. That's what I, that's uh, Yes, because I, I learned a lot of things watching some of the very good artists that there were in Miami Beach. Yeah. I learned uh, what it's like to have people pose for you. Uh, and, and being comfortable with that relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. I learned about lighting, lighting the sitters. Uh, I learned a number of things about values and uh, reducing the technique so that uh, uh, you could get the picture finished. Yeah. I learned a lot uh, from the experience in, in Miami Beach. Mostly the discipline of having people pose for you hour after hour and having to uh, come up with successful yeah, results. Yeah. So when you moved up to New York and you did your time in um, um, the Art Students League. It's been a very different New York back then. Yeah, I can only imagine. But um, at that point, were you like, I'm going to stay in New York now? I'm going to be a working New York artist? Yes. And... I, I wasn't sure if you were like, well, now I'm just going to be a portrait artist, or were you like, I'm just an artist, I happen to be into portraits, but I'm also going to do gallery work, I'm going to look... I, I think at one point you were doing an illustration. No, I never you did never illustration. did it. Okay, I thought you did, but uh, were you like, I'm going to start doing my ideas of what paintings are yes. going to be that aren't for a client, and then start yes. getting those out there? Well, as well, I was exposed when I came to New York to all kinds of painting. Uh, and a lot of it uh, I saw at the Art Students League by the teachers there. and Their personal work. Yeah, their personal work, right. And so that seemed to me to be uh, a terrific challenge and goal to create one's own vision 
and and to produce work that uh, uh, was very personal. Yeah, and and I acquired the skills to be able to figure out how to go about doing that through not only there but even doing jobs like portraiture and stuff. So you can, oh yes, so yeah. that can pay you to be able to continue to com- you know. Yeah, that's correct. Um, But mainly in New York, I was exposed by going to galleries Mm. uh, and painting competitions and exhibitions to what personal kinds of things artists were doing. Uh, They weren't doing that in Florida, uh, but they were doing that in New York. And so one learns a lot from just... uh, observing your environment, but yeah. it was an environment in New York of terrific artists. The competition in New York was uh, extreme for attention. Regardless of the vibe um, of the time, meaning like the abstract movement and everything, there was still an energy of the type of art that was interesting to you that was helping yes, absolutely. Like, feed you energy and influence yeah, and inspiration. Yeah, I, I came within a short time to recognize who the uh, most influential and outstanding artists were that were painting in a realistic style by going to galleries, being in competitions, um, just being aware. And again, uh, becoming friendly with some of them. I mentioned John Koch, who was an immense influence on realist painters. Yeah. Were you looking to the past as well? Were you looking at the old masters, yes, and like the yes, century, yes, and yes. having sort of the the exposure to that too? Was Absolutely. That, who were some of your the people you were looking at that were just really well? Uh, the list is vast, of course. <laughs> but uh, because they worked in different ways, but they but the old masters that I admire uh, all had similar things in common. I don't know if I mentioned to you, but the old masters were painting under the same lighting conditions that uh, we have available to us today. It was a, they were painting in a single light, a single light direction, which was a north light studio. Yeah. And uh, the light only comes from one direction. And regardless of uh, the sitter, all of the people that posed for these great artists were substantially ahead, a different heads, in a single uh, north light setting. Consequently, one could look at the way Van Dyke treated that, the way Rembrandt treated it, the way... uh, uh, Holbein treated it the way El Greco treated it. As an example, I observed that when El Greco did a portrait in a single source of light, a north light, he would eliminate uh, middle tones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his work had a stark, dark and light like, quality yeah. because of that. Uh, when uh, Rembrandt did a head in the same kind of lighting, he would stress paint qualities, values, t- painting technique, personality. I mean, yeah. he, he, he did it all. Yeah, he was kind of like, <laughs> you can do it all. Uh, and when uh, 
other artists uh, such as Van, Anthony Van Dyke, yeah. as an example, would do a head in a single source of light. Uh, th there would be a certain um, emphasis on uh, patterns and value and, and, and light, basically light and shade, yeah. and a certain beauty to it that uh, was innate in the work that Van Dyke did. So it was uh, a learning experience to recognize that all of the artists of the past, the great artists of the past, stressed one or more aspects of their painting technique, mm -hmm. even though they were fundamentally painting under the same conditions. Yeah, yeah. And that could be very informative, because then when you have somebody posing for you, you can call upon, well, how did Van Dyke do this? How did Rembrandt do this? How did so-and-so do this? And you can experiment with... Uh, the gift of time is giving you the reference, like the category of yes. reference that you can go and pull anything right. you want to apply to your vision. Exactly right, but it has to be coupled with your being able to or having already mastered different techniques. It's something that I think we stress a lot now is when we're teaching at the Grand Central Atelier or doing workshops or doing our own thing is... is for me, the idea that I understand you want to be creative and you want to be an artist, but the freedom to be creative and be an artist is the road is better when you have an amazing amount of skills to back you up. Yeah, I'm still trying to stress that, and it's, you know, I learned it from seeing, you know, examples of your work and, and others that I was like, these are people who can do anything they want because they have the ability to do anything they want because they've you know, put the time in to learn the skills. So with that said, were you starting to, you know, now that you were you know, becoming a mature artist, I'm assuming you were starting to come up with your own definitions of what skill is, applying your own ideas of techniques that you were take a little bit from this person, a little bit from this person, and now you're going to make it very much your own. <clears throat> yes, that's a that's a given. That uh, one do their own work in their own way. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm only stressing that the more preparation you have, the more diverse can be your choices. Mm. Um, I am not a fan of copying an artist's style. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it can be informative, but I know of artists whose works I dislike because they have taken the solutions that someone else, some other great artist figured out yeah. and just used that as a uh, formula for trying to make make believe that they have all those uh, mm -hmm. uh, skills at their beck and call. I see a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I don't want to name any names. <clears throat> but that's certainly a factor. <laughs> did you always bounce back and forth between pastels and oils? I did. Uh, my father gave me a set of, I think, five or six pastels when I was very, very young. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I think, the first art material that I had. Mm -hmm. 
And it was only when I moved to Florida and saw artists working in pastel that I realized they should have been sharpened <laughs> and that you could use them in uh, very different ways than I had tried using them when I was a child. Uh, I don't remember your question. And then did you gravitate towards oil once you came up to New York at the Art Students League? Yes. But have you always, I mean, it seems like you've continued to work in pastels. You just have like a a love or a comfort level with the medium? Well, yes. I I started with them so early that I always had a proclivity for uh, working in pastel. And then when I went to the Art Students League, I endeavored to learn how to paint in oil. Right. And Brackman was probably teaching the class in oil. Yes, 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 yes. In fact, he was. And uh, it just seemed to be uh, uh, one had to be able to paint in oil right? Uh, to be able to do all the things you want to do. Did you feel like they were informing each other or are they kind of separate? Uh, in my case, they definitely were informing each other because... <clears throat> I could do things in pastel before I could do them in oil. Uh And I said to myself that it was a question of my catching up where I would be able to equal my expressive abilities in oil so that it caught up with what I could currently do in pastel. Mm -hmm. So that was a benefit as I now look back on it uh, to know that it was just a question of... uh, a skill level sort of catching up. Yeah. When you were mentioning um, when you had that Sennelier set and you had, you were saying that there was different values of colors and then you were able to take a color and use several values. If with your own paint style and oil, I remember hearing about your, when I was in art school, your technique of almost Pre-mixing. Yeah, I did do pre-mix colors. Yeah, values yes. in a string, let's say. Exactly. And it hugely influenced my own work. And I, to Good. this day, I mix strings. Um, and it came from information that was given to me second and third hand of your work, never seeing w- how you painted, but heard about how you did it. And I was like, that makes sense. Yeah, Why wouldn't sense. you do that? It's, it, it maybe is a better way to control it. Was that something that you were, that you developed via pastel or is it something that, you know, cause you know, you had Riley and people at the time at the art students league and maybe it was in the air, but it was it something you were just like, this just makes sense to me because of what I did in the past or. No, it, it was based it. on the uh, strings of gradations of color and value in pastel. Ah. Mm-hmm. And so I decided uh, I would pre-mix colors do strings of uh, values and colors. And in effect, I created a group of colors that were very workable for every portrait that I did. And it was all based entirely on pastel. Uh, None of it was based on Riley. I I, uh, was never a fan of yeah. of his work. I don't know if he did that or not. I, I think he did, but I. It's funny because I'm like I'm thinking about my own work, and I didn't even realize that my history was coming from part of it was coming from pastel pastels because I don't work in pastels. Right. And you're sort of filling in a little bit of like a blank 
and mm-hmm. what I'm doing and I don't know why I do certain things. Because again, like I mentioned, a, some of the stuff that I was developing was just a story that I heard. And I was like, well, let me try to, I guess that's a way to think about it. Well, I do so that for, you. uh, well, you're most, <laughs> most welcome if it comes from me. Uh, it just made more sense to me to make a, a, a group of colors in, in a string or rows before I began painting so I wouldn't have to spend all my time mixing colors and losing time painting. And so I do that for every painting that I do. And uh, for me, it it works fine. Yeah. Would you uh, tube? Would you tube them up? I've done some of that too. Yeah. To, well, yes. That's interesting. You mentioned that. I have uh, spent hours and hours with a glass slab and many tubes of paint, mixing a few colors that I wanted to exactly replicate from picture I'm to picture. I'm laughing. I'm sorry. I'm laughing because I'm like. That is like my life, <laughs> just doing that. Yeah, uh, for two reasons. One is that way I can just, and put them in tubes, yeah. squeeze out the color I want, know that it's gonna be exactly that color every single time. Mm-hmm. And the other is occasionally to be able to match a color that I'm using over and over again. Like a uh, flesh tone? Well, they're all sort of flesh tones, yeah. but yes, yeah. it is that. I do that with my own paintings is I'll mix in, if, if it's not enough for a tube, I'll make them into like bladders with like saran wrap and they'll last seven months. And oh, I've, if I can, I've never done that. If I can go back to my painting six months later and I just Open put out all and it's yeah. my whole background, let's say. And I have it there, and matching it, it's as if I was painting it yesterday. Yeah, that's fine. That's, that makes good sense. I bought open-ended paint tubes yeah. from uh, that store in in, uh, in the village. Pearl? Uh, Pearl Paint? Was that a... Uh, uh, I don't know if it was Pearl. There, there was one over by the school... Uh, Utrecht. No, New York school Central? of... Yeah, New York Central. Ah. <laughs> right. <clears throat> um, it's a great old store. It's not there anymore. It's gone, unfortunately. But yeah. uh, I, I have occasion still now to spend time mixing a particular color and putting it in those open-ended tubes. Yeah. I never thought of putting it in uh, saran wrap or something. I mean, they only last. Easier, I yeah. generally make them into tubes. I have tons of tubes with flesh and you know if, if it's enough for a background right. or if it's I start realizing if it's something I'm mixing all the time a certain color I'm like well let me just tube that well, up yeah, because I know exactly. it's so easy to get the air out for uh, the saran wrap too whereas like if there's just a tiny bit of air in the well, I'm those just, tubes I yeah, yeah. tap it until know, all the bubbles to... are out I'm like ah <laughs> and I do it but I know it, it's just it's, it's, it's so it's such a pleasure to almost hear these things because it's something that I I did, and I didn't know why I was doing. I knew why I was doing it, but um, it's really nice to connect the dots for somebody like me. It's Good. like part of my my past. Well, I'm pleased if in any way uh, I'm a beneficial, or my work is a beneficial uh, uh, attribute well, yeah, to I've the been, way you work. I've been a fan <coughs> of your work, not only Thank your you. portrait work, but your your 
I don't want to say it's fine art because I know portrait work is fine art too. It's your work, but your your personal work with the subway. Yes. Yeah. So what started influencing? Was it just your time in New York? Was it something that inspired you to just start making these personal paintings? Well, <clears throat> when I was going to the Art Students League, um, I lived in uh, Forest Hills, mm -hmm. and I had to take the subway, which at the time was fifteen cents to New York to go to the Art Students League. And as I did so, uh, I couldn't help noticing the mosaics in the subway. Mm -hmm. And um, I've since found out a lot more about the subways. And every station is done in, a, in different colors mm -hmm. because around the turn of the century when uh, immigrants from Europe moved to uh, New York, uh, uh, many of them rode the subways, but they couldn't read English. So the subways at the turn of the century, each station was designed with different colors of mosaic yeah. so that the immigrants could recognize mm -hmm. their subway stop by virtue of the colors. Yeah, color you know, we get off at the red and green yeah. stop, or we get off at the purple stop, whatever <laughs> it was. Um, Many years later, uh, my wife and I went on a honeymoon uh, to Italy, and we went to Pompeii. Mm -hmm. And in Pompeii, I noticed that many of the uh, uh, buildings had mosaics, and that reminded me that I had seen mosaics uh, back in New York and that there was a particular painting that uh, I had envisioned when riding the subways in New York, going to the Art Students League. And it was basically just several people sitting on a bench underneath a colorful mosaic. And so I decided that when I would get back to New York, I would go into the subway with the express purpose of finding a setting that included several people sitting on a bench with a, a mosaic behind them. And I did that, mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't long before I discovered that every station had possibilities for subway paintings. Yeah. And so I uh, got models to sit under the under a mosaic somewhere in the subway. And I had a friend take photographs of them. <clears throat> and then I recreated that uh, scene back in my studio. I, I got models that could yeah. pose for me in North Light. Uh, I had the uh, complexity of the particular mosaic in photograph form that I could put behind them. Uh, I could pose them in my North White studio, mm -hmm. and I did the first of my subway paintings. Um, I didn't think anybody would be interested in subway paintings, but when I exhibited, I, I did a number of them, actually. Yeah. When I exhibited them, I found that there were people who were especially 
fond of the subways because that was the stop that they used to met, mm-hmm. use when they went to work or that's where they met their wife or yeah. that's where some other event in yeah. their life that centered around the subway Location. had occurred. And so I, I had a show of uh, my subway paintings. I guess at, at that time I had probably 30 or 40 of them. Wow. And my show at Hennig Gallery in New York oh, yeah. got a terrific response. And I got uh, all kinds of uh, worldwide publicity on television and newspapers, magazines. Um, and so I continued to paint some of my pictures. I don't remember how many I've done. I counted them at one point. <laughs> I, I think it's about 160 wow. Wow, really? at this point. And I'm, st- I'm still painting pastels? them. No, no, they yeah, I, some were in oil, some yeah. were in pastel, but many were done back in my studio because I couldn't get the people that I actually saw right. in the subway yeah. to come out and pose for me. Yeah, yeah. I was, I couldn't do large subway paintings because there were only, I could only get certain sizes of canvas through the turnstiles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, the lighting was not very good in yeah. the subway. Yeah, they're Plus. Bad, Although yeah. the lighting on the people is fantastic in the subway, it's almost like having a Northlight studio. When you're on the subway, yeah. everybody's yes. oh, kind that's of right. lit from overhead. And Absolutely it's, it's beautiful right. lighting. Absolutely right. Uh, matter of fact, one that I'm working on currently mm-hmm. in the studio is of uh, the interior of a subway car with the orange and yellow uh, seats yeah. and uh, uh, and the lighting on the uh, tubes and oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, banisters. Yeah, and the things. reflections off the top. Yeah. It's oh, great. Yeah. Bouncing yeah. all over the place. There's a, a lot of material in the subway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, to this day, when I see anybody doing a painting of somebody in a subway station i'm just like yeah, that's daniel green <laughs> like, well, i think the same i think thing. You lo- it's like you lock that it's like no you, that's that's locked up already you can't you got to think of something a little bit different well i remember a friend of mine being on the jury at the national academy annual show mm-hmm. which was a significant sh- competitive show that they used to have every year and he told me that right after I started exhibiting my subway paintings that they had seven paintings come up with subway themes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I know it's, it's not a subject that I, I have a lock on. I, I can't help. Well, the other thing is I think uh, lots of art students, certainly when I was uh, younger, but I continue to do it if I if I can, just sketch people on the subways. You're of course. sitting there, you've got models that who are going to be there for three, four stops. Absolutely. <laughs> when I was... Uh, a, a, a kid and living in Westchester um, and coming into the city to go skateboarding or go downtown to be a kid um, on the train like at Grand Central Station I always had a sketch pad with me and I would draw try to draw everybody around that's me. a perfect uh, yeah. situation it's so good it's it's um, did you start thinking about when you were painting and exhibiting that you wanted to start teaching or was that some, a goal that you were like this is part of it's well, part of the whole deal of being an artist is uh, teaching that happened a long time ago when I was uh, in Greenwich Village I lived on McDougal Street and uh, 
there were lots of artists there. And <clears throat> some of them asked me if I would uh, look at their work and give them suggestions or critiques. And I did that, and I found that uh, it came easily to me that I was able to articulate what I was looking at, uh, and that partly I'd always done that with my own work. Uh, in your head. In my head, <laughs> being able to explain to myself what I was doing or what to do. Um, so I, I was asked to join the Salmagundi Club, and <clears throat> there... Uh, I don't remember exactly how it came about, but I was asked to teach a class there, and I did that. Like a workshop or like an ongoing class? An ongoing weekly class, and I found that it was, it was easy, that I was able to explain how to improve one's work, that yeah. I, I could uh, uh, see where people needed to... Uh, improve and it, it was just it wasn't hard to do uh, from there like you can find the holes in their skill and try to fill it with some information yes. or just physically just say hey you need to change this whole did you thing. find it fun and rewarding oh I did yeah and I found it easy yeah and so that just kind of opened up uh, uh, my being able to consider that teaching could be uh, a viable part of my activities. Also, it was, uh, I, I could earn some money teaching. Mm -hmm. um, I was asked to teach at the Art Students League and at the National Academy. At this, to this day, I don't remember exactly how that came about. Yeah. But uh, at, the, at the League, we got a commission on every student that came to class, so it became a money-making nice. uh, <laughs> opportunity. The, if you could fill right. the student. Going out giving flyers. <laughs> like right, and that was also how I was able to take the studio that uh, I took on 67th Street by increasing my teaching and earning money from the students who came to my classes, and I theorized that uh, a larger studio would enable me to have more students, more students yeah. which would enable me to be able to afford it. The, um, and, do, and possibly do a different type of painting, because you have a studio that can oh, yes. facilitate yeah, something. Precisely. Wow. There's this tradition at the League also of some outstanding student in, in the class when that teacher decides to stop teaching, yes. taking over, and it's like a huge honor. Oh, oh that's quite right. I know... Uh, John Sandon took over uh, Edward Oppenheim's class. Mm -hmm. I took over Brackman's class. I don't know who, if anyone, took over Riley's classes. I don't. I don't know uh, about all the other all the teachers, others. but yeah, it's a great but you honor. Had stepped into that role for Brackman. Yes, yeah, it was a great honor uh, to be teaching there when I arrived there. I knew nothing. Yeah. So, well, you know how to do a quick pastel portrait <laughs> of my hand. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Did your, te did your um, teaching start influencing your, your personal work at all? Um, 
I don't really know. Um, I imagine so, but I don't really know. Mm -hmm. uh, let me think about that a minute. I, I can't answer that. Yeah. I've always found that just having to explain things kind of crystallizes them for, you know, I, I understand them more clearly and that frequently yeah, that makes sense. I'm learning more than, well, hopefully more than the <laughs> students, but I'm certainly learning as much as they are. <laughs> um, but just the act of explaining and also having people come up with questions that I never thought to, to ask often is oh I'm glad you mentioned that <clears throat> when teaching at the Art Students League I would much rather have been a student in my class than <laughs> teaching my class because there were so many interesting things that the students in class did yeah. that were just terrific. Things yeah. I never would have thought of. <laughs> things that uh, uh, they just were fearless in uh, uh, attempting some of the things. So I much rather would have been in class <laughs> than teaching class. That, I learned a lot from my students. That ignorant is bliss type of thing. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I do dream about those those moments. I'm pretty ignorant, but... <laughs> well, but we also we teach at the Grand Central Atelier, yeah. both of us, and uh, some of the students who come through there are so outstandingly gifted and yes. are able to, you know, put things together in kind of ways that hadn't occurred to me. And you see, I mean, it's it's such an incredible feeling to have played a role in helping somebody get to where they want to be and then at the same time when they get to where they want to be with their own work it comes around and influences what you're doing yeah. and you realize oh my god this person came up with a solution that never in a million years would have occurred to me but it's brilliant and I can figure out some way that that can influence my own work that's most interesting <clears throat> I, I do remember another uh, instance that uh, <clears throat> At one point, when I was teaching at the League uh, and wanting rather to be in my class than uh, <laughs> teaching it, I decided to do something I always wanted to do, which was to move to Europe, France in particular, and I felt I could make a living as an artist in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, I had been to Europe before and people there had wanted to buy my paintings when I was doing landscapes mm -hmm. on the road uh, or other places. But th the wind-up was uh, I did decide to move to Europe in the belief that I might be able to make a living there. The first thing that I did when I got to Paris, which is where I intended to go without speaking a language, was to enroll in the uh, Grand Chamier Art School mm -hmm. because I figured I'd have models right away. Uh, I could paint every day. Mm -hmm. I would meet people. And so that's what I did. Uh, I arrived in Paris on, I think, a Saturday or so. And uh, on Monday, I enrolled in the Grand Chamier Art School. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing I noticed 
was that the model stand was in the wrong place in relation to the light. The second thing I noticed was that there was a family of cats, kittens, living underneath the model stand, <laughs> which, which means wasn't, the, model stand wasn't was the never case moved. in New York. And I looked around. They were all very, very diligently working. But I looked around at all of the artists. I looked around at the, uh, there were teach, examples of the teachers' works, and I came to the conclusion that no one knew anything, <laughs> nothing. Yeah. They were spinning their wheels, yeah. uh, which I found <laughs> regrettable. But I started painting, and uh, um, when my picture began to develop, uh, some students came over and looked at it and asked me questions if they spoke English. And then the teacher came over, and he was a French gentleman, and he said, he looked at my picture, and he said, that's what I want them to do. <laughs> but my uh, disenchantment was they were all very, very, very busy working. But On they, what? But they weren't learning anything. So nobody was teaching. So nobody was teaching them. Uh, well, the, the French teacher wasn't. Yeah. Uh, so I found that regrettable. But it accomplished my purpose. I made friends with a few people. I made friends with models who posed for me. I left the class because I really wasn't getting anything from it. Uh, but I did make some friends and find some people that uh, were sort of sympathetic. How and long did you stay were, in Paris? Yeah, how Second, long were you there for? You Very short time. Oh, it's a short time. Okay. Yeah. And then back to New York? Um, well, I had found a studio, an artist studio in Paris. I don't know if you know the work of uh, uh, an American painter, Joseph Hirsch. Well, he taught sure. at the League, but he was a marvelous painter, and he had a studio there that uh, I rented sight unseen. It had a north light, mm -hmm. and uh, you know I could I could cook there and uh, have models and this and that. And so I stayed for a while. And my you can visit the museums and get some oh visual absolutely absolutely food. yeah a lot to yeah look definitely at yeah. I did visit the museums. Um, then my daughter came to visit, and then we went on a bus tour uh, through France and Italy that specialized in stopping in museums, and uh, we met a number of nice people on that tour. Uh, and then we came back to the United States. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember offhand what I did after that. But you were able to accomplish that idea of just going to France and living yes. in Europe and just being like, yes. I did it. Yes. Another little check mark. <laughs> Try yeah, that's true. And in fact, I believe I could have made a living as a, an artist. Was it a viable um, avenue there in Europe at the time to make a living as an artist. It always, I've always heard from you know old illustrators and old artists that it was still the United States that you were going to make. You were going to make a living as a working artist. Um, you're probably right because they, I would imagine if there were people buying paintings, they would be buying paintings from other Europeans, not Americans. Oh yeah, and then bringing it back to America. <laughs> right. Well, the market, I think, also, in uh, from what I understand, around uh, the market in France and in Italy, uh, 
had turned even stronger towards kind of abstract and, and modernism and, and wasn't, because they were surrounded by classical painting, that was the old stuff and they weren't yeah, interested. I'm in sure you're right. <clears throat> was there any moments in your portrait career when you met somebody that, or had a conversation in a session, one of those, you know, 10 sessions of three hours that influenced you as an artist or a conversation or you're like that's that was an amazing inspirational like story. oh absolutely and that was ayn rand the author wow you wow i would um, love to hear just a tidbit of that well um i did a number of portraits of her yeah. and uh <clears throat> well actually the way it started i was in the army you were in the army yes oh. uh the U.S. Army, yeah. <laughs> stationed on Governor's Island in what was called the Recruiting Publicity Center, which is where we did posters that said, join the Army, join the Air Force. and uh, Were you doing those posters? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, do you have any of them? Like, or reproductions? I do not. Um, I, I had been drafted into the Army. And... Uh, when uh, questionnaires went around to the new inductees as to what we did during our civilian life, yeah. and I put down artists and some things about my art, um, that was seen by some of the officers at what was called the Recruiting Publicity Center. And uh, I was then immediately selected to uh, be in what was the Army's art department. The officer in charge of that was uh, Shelley Streisand, Barbara Streisand's brother. Wow. And yeah. he was a real yeah. jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't get along well at all. Um, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, one of the things that was a point of uh, difference is he gave me an assignment to do a picture of a rocket going up in the air, which I did in the Army's art department, but then he signed his name to it. And I objected to that, and his rationale was he had given me the idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a, that's so stolen we, we, didn't, we didn't get along at all. Um, in any event, I taught classes in, when I was in the Army, painting classes. To the, to, to the soldiers, you're teaching art classes. And to some of their offspring, some wow. of their children. On base. On base. Yeah. Uh, right outside of New York, where Governor's Island is now. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I would take the ferry back and forth from Governor's Island to Manhattan. Uh, and I did portraits from photographs for a company that specialized in what I now call schlock portraits. <laughs> but I was making, I think they were 20 by 24, 16 by 20, uh, and I would get $20 a piece for them or $30 a piece, and I would do them in the barracks and then take the ferry and, and then go uptown to, I think they had a, a business on 56th Street and yeah. deliver them. 
So I was making a little bit of money doing uh, portraits from photographs. Um, Whilst being in the Army. While being in the <laughs> Army. And when I left the Army, actually I, I met my first wife in the Army. I don't remember how I met. Oh, I, I, I remember. Oh, um, I was, there was a point at which I was eligible to live off base. And so with a friend of mine, an illustrator, a very, very good illustrator uh, named Hoffman, Bill Hoffman, he did the illustrations for the movie A Face in the Crowd. Okay. He was yeah. very good. We pooled our money and we got an apartment in Greenwich Village. And I was able to go back and forth to work. Um, one day, walking around Greenwich Village on the uh, West Greenwich Village, I went into a coffee shop where they had a, an opera singer singing. Sing. And I was smitten with uh, her voice, and I asked the young woman if uh, I could do a portrait of her. And uh, I did, and we became uh, uh, attracted to one another. And, uh, That's a good pickup line. Yeah, I don't the remember artist, what my pickup line was. You pulled the artist card out. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked, and we married. And uh, she went on to become uh, an opera singer, and I learned a lot about what's involved uh, with being a singer in New York. Uh -huh. And when I got out of the Army, uh, um, we took an apartment in uh, Greenwich Village, um, and I began painting pictures of Greenwich Village. Uh, I painted pictures from my window on McDougal Street. I painted pictures. Like cityscapes? You were out there yes, kind of painting Yes, I'm just painting what's moment. out the window. Yeah. One of them I did was uh, right out my window on McDougal Street, and I... I, I Sorry, I don't have a picture of it here. We'll, I, we'll find it. Oh, we'll I abandoned the picture because yeah. it looked too much like a um, Winslow Homer. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I abandoned uh, them all the time because they looked yeah. too much like <laughs> I didn't want it to look like somebody else's work. Yeah. But I painted a lot of pictures of buildings and back alleys in Greenwich Village, um, and I at that time started to exhibit in competitions and yeah. I, I wrote a couple books um, that was kind of how things started and did you encounter Ayn Rand somehow through that? oh yes I'm sorry uh, when I went into the army um, I was in the process of reading uh, The Fountainhead mm -hmm. and I was very uh impressed with it because what I gained from it was it was a story of an architect or sort of an artist who uh, didn't compromise his integrity. And I thought that was just how I wanted to view my painting. I didn't want to compromise my integrity. Mm -hmm. um, I must have seen an ad in a newspaper that Ayn Rand was going to be giving a lecture in New York City on such and such a date. And so I arranged to 
take the ferry to Manhattan and go to her lecture, which very likely was in some hotel someplace. I don't remember where. Mm-hmm. And I did. And uh, there must have been about 50 or 60 people there, um, all individualists. And uh, during one of the breaks, somehow I, I got talking to her husband, uh, Frank, uh, what the hell was Frank's name? He found out that I was an artist, I, I must have told him. And we had both studied with Brackman, which was a selling point. Yeah. And so he was very anxious to uh, introduce me to Ian. Mm-hmm. And he did. And uh, uh, she was very enthused about our meeting. And uh, we arranged that. Uh, when she was enthused, was she just interested in the lifestyle? Because I remember reading Fountainhead as a, you know, as a youth too. Was she interested in learning more about that under? So it's because it's almost like an underground world of like this thing that you're throwing yourself into. Does she want to know more about what it's like to be a real artist out there? Huh. Let me think. Um, well, I had. <clears throat> if I recall correctly, already begun painting businessmen, leaders of industry. And she was especially interested in what they were like. Ah, And I had an insight into painting from life, people who were chairmen of the board of big, big companies. And they were her heroes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, um, I got to know some of them fairly well, and she was quite curious. Um, so we arranged that by this time I was now out of the Army. I had gotten married, taken an apartment in Greenwich Village. Uh, her husband's name was O'Connor, Frank O'Connor, just came to me. and. Uh, it was decided that I would do a portrait of her. Mm-hmm. And she was very excited about having her portrait done. She, uh, I was at her house once. She lived in an apartment on 36th Street uh, near the Morgan Library. And she modeled for the group of us that were there what she was going to wear for her portrait. And she was very coquettish about it. <laughs> uh, she. Uh, took it very seriously. She began uh, posing for me. By that time, I had a a studio um, in an old hotel on 36th Street, and I had the light came from a skylight in the studio. The only thing you could see through the skylight was the top of the Empire State Building, which was especially propitious for her. (laughs) So she came and posed for me. And uh, during the time when she posed for me, uh, we had numerous discussions. And she would bring with her a woman, uh, Marianne Rukavana was her name, who was an aesthetician. 
someone who wrote about art, and she would take notes about what we were discussing, wow. and I would paint iron for 10, 15 minutes, and then we would debate every stroke for another 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, so I learned more from Ayn Rand about how to conduct or how not to conduct portrait sittings. Because uh, I did a number of portraits of her, from, of her, and uh, we would have arguments, debates, uh, discourses later at her apartment or later at, at my apartment. And uh, I know she formulated some of her ideas about painting anyway from those discussions. And I formulated how not to deal with customers <laughs> from uh, my interaction with her. Would she initiate the conversations? Would you remember if she would like almost want to kind of not pick a fight, but almost be like, hey, what do you think about this to kind of get get it going? Yes, she would do that. What happened to the notes? Well, I didn't take any of the notes. But the notes that the, the per do you know I don't if know. they're they, out there? They may have shown up in a book of hers. Uh, she wrote books on aesthetics, and I know that whatever she wrote on art, uh, many of her positions were formulated during my sessions. So wow. there may be a book out there that incorporates the things and that we debated. And to the public or us is that it was coming from you. Well, mm -hmm. it was coming for, from, from our, the conversation, from from our interaction. The, the, yeah, the but debate. I'm sure that's where it ended up. I don't know which book it may have been, but I'm sure that's where it ended up. At, and, that, at that time, were you very opinionated were you like steadfast in your in your um, philosophies on art and everything were you just like I'm this is I'm a you know a young man and this is the way well it be. I had uh, a position of being an equal because I knew my subject and my subject was art and I had the ability to be able to articulate what I thought about it mm -hmm. uh, she was um, an absolute uh, master of her philosophy, mm -hmm. her ideas about philosophy and how to uh, explain them, defend them, uh, and impart them. So I was no match for her when it came to issues of her philosophy. She was no match for me when it came to understanding and explaining art. So we had a one area in which there was a kind of an equal balance. Yeah, yeah. And did you learn from the experience not to argue with the sitter? Or? I learned one simple thing, yeah. which I still do to this day. Do not solicit approval. Oh, yeah. Don't uh, imply that you need somebody's help because they will tell you right. how they can help you. Like that, what the the, woman the girl's in, fake mother who's from trying to tell Miami. you. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Did you ca carry on that relationship with her at any point outside of the studio and painting when you were done painting? Like when you were. Yeah, I became part friends. of her inner clique, and uh, uh, we had a relationship for a number of years until I moved basically up to Sixty uh, Seventh Street. But prior to that time, uh, uh, I did a number of portraits of her. We 
I participated in uh, numerous of her meeting of uh, the group that was closest to her. One of the people that, that I don't remember, but who was in that group, later became the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten his name, but he was amongst that group. Uh, she had some very bright people that yeah. uh, she surrounded herself with. Her, with. Uh, her protege was uh, a Canadian uh, intellectual, Nathaniel Brandon. And they had a falling out, a terrible falling out, where she wanted to sleep with him, and oh. and she got the okay to sleep with him from her husband and from his wife, and it became a very messy oh. situation. <laughs> Scandalous. That's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, so, but those were some of the people that I wow. interacted with. So, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful life that... You're, you you have and are leading, oh, well, and it's an you. inspiration to people like us who, when I went into this, and people like me going into this not knowing what the future holds, that we can kind of look to people like you as, you know, to me it's like this person did it right. You know, and there's well, hope I, <laughs> for yeah. us to go into this, I don't know where I'm going, but mm-hmm. at least I can... You know, with look at people I admire and 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 see things that um, you know, or it can get excited about. I think. Well, that's great. I'm I'm delighted and flattered if uh, uh, what I have uh, done is in any way helpful or inspirational. Yeah. For me, it was just a given that this is what I I wanted to be an artist, and uh, it was really just. Come what may, I've been lucky. I've been flattered. I've. Uh, um, but you've earned it. Well, you've I've earned I've it. done whatever has been the direction that uh, has led to uh, being honored and being influential and being successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm happy to have any words of. Uh, Advice or wisdom that uh, can be helpful to any others, but for me it was just a given. It was that's the way I wanted my life to go, and it's it's worked out for me. And well, I I look really forward to seeing your new work yeah. and what you're working on. Oh, thank you. So um, I and th- thank you so much for just being so open and and sharing with us. Oh, well, good. I'm it's I, from walking into the Art Students League that first day as a 13 year old and and kind of worshiping that painting of yours, Thank the you. pastel. It's it's so great. It's such an honor to get to meet you and talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, I'm still trying to think of the other person that uh, Brackman studied with. It was Henry, and there was somebody whose name started with a C. Uh, and in New York State, Artist that sounded with C. Now I'm going to be like right now. People are no, yelling think, at their their phones and yeah. their headphones. Wait, no, it's this person. No, I think it was an Ohio artist. Ohio. Huh. Uh, you know, they will edit in the, the yeah. at this point in the conversation. We're going to edit in the uh, the name. <laughs> I know. Let's see, and I think he might have been George Bellows. Oh, oh wow. wow! Yeah, that's who it was. George Bellows. George Bellows. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know why I thought it was. Well, he's an Ohio artist. Yeah, I don't remember. Being Zappos. Doesn't start with C, though. But <laughs> yeah. It was Bellows and Henry. Yeah, I mean, those not, are not bad. Pretty yeah. great people to be. Yeah. So, you know, those are, you're getting Bellows and Henry's DNA, you know, that, that DNA. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Well, I figured Brackman knew how to paint. And yes. anything that uh, he said was based on his ability to be able to do it. You know, it's funny is when I remember now, the, the, I'm thinking in the past of hearing about your, your method, your technique of mixing paint. I remember when I discovered Bouguereau as a, as a young artist and there was no information about, about him. And that's some of the, where I would pull out the Sotheby's catalogs on the street. Yes. I would, I would pull out Bouguereau's because that's the only place you can get images. And then eventually I started hearing through people who studied with somebody who studied with him at arts, you know, from the Art Students League that they said that he used to pre-mix and Did put him into like bladders. And that's why he can paint so fast. Oh, that's interesting. That, that it, it's very conceivable that he had his assistants or something pre-mix his flesh or pre-mix certain things because he did like uh, 800, 800 paintings. paintings in his in his career yeah it was amazing amazing and he would just crank them out and people were saying well he was pre-mixing and I was like <gasps> and that was like <laughs> things were starting to connect and I was like Daniel Green did this and <laughs> apparently Bouguereau was in this thing and so it no, just dawned on me that that was another part of the just the I wonder how Bouguereau did some of the things that he did because they were so brilliantly done and yeah. he had such facility. Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised to learn he may have uh, pre-mixed colors at all. Yeah, for speed's sake, you know, and, and think about, I always, for me, when I would pre-mix colors or have something in a systematic way, it was to free me up to, to care about whether it's the surface or the color or like you know to make it a little bit better yeah, i was like that yeah i was like that's just that's gonna open me up to just concentrate on this other thing that's like so fleeting and so hard to to get that if i can systemize something that is understandable you know i can maybe put emotion in it or something like that it's like so that was Eventually, when I got a little bit more mature, is why I was like, I don't know why, but you know what Daniel Green's doing makes sense to me. I don't know well, why. Well, good. <clears throat> um, I know the collector uh, Alan Funt, who used oh, yeah, to be on sure. television, yeah, collected Alma yeah. Tatama paintings when nobody was uh, interested. Alan yeah. Funt was collecting Alma Tatama paintings. He has a wow. huge collection, or had. Yeah. And he was buying them. Nobody else wanted them. Yeah. And uh, uh, Fred Fred Ross uh, yeah. was buying Bougaros. Yeah. 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 So there's some people who took a chance on uh, certain artists that got in when nobody else was yeah. interested. But it's amazing they fell out of favor. I mean, because you know Bougaro or uh, there's that great book, the Ross King book about Messonnier, and yeah. you know Messonnier was a huge judgment name of Paris. I didn't even know there was a book on Messonnier because <laughs> nobody speaks of him at it's, all. I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And the book is about the decline of Messonnier and the rise of Manet, and how oh. you know, Manet in his day, you know, nobody would have known about, but Messonnier was world famous and. In the years since he died, the Messonnier statues in Paris were taken down, and Manet's reputation just 
Well, I, I'm an admirer of mayonnaise. It was terrific. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so again, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time out to come and talk to us. It's I think my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank it you. It was inspirational. And, thank you. Um, and I look forward again to seeing your new, your new work. And uh, you're you're up in you know in New York, so um, I might be knocking on your door, being that young, <laughs> well, just, just that give young us guy, a being call. like, I'm just going to sit here and watch you for Show a while. Show us how you make your pastels. <laughs> okay. Thank um, you, and yeah. thank you for listening, you. everybody. And oh. uh, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. This was a huge treat. Oh, thank treat. you. Um, I don't know if my wife is. Yeah, she's just right here. Is uh, she here? 